Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we'll hear a sermon from Dr. Amy Orr Ewing on forgiveness. That's because last week, church leaders and politicians joined together in the ancient Westminster Hall for the parliamentary prayer breakfast. From the outside, it could be seen as Westminster business as usual, a comfortable networking event for schmoozing in the heart of the establishment. Yet I would argue that the breakfast is something radically countercultural, a space in the Houses of Parliament where we commit once a year to praying for our leaders. Throughout scripture, we are told to submit to authorities, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or to governors. This doesn't absolve us from the requirement to speak out against injustice, though. We are not called to be neutral over right and wrong. But we are also given another command to pray for those leaders. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is a command that some Christians might struggle with. Submit to and pray for politicians, you say, even the ones we don't agree with, the ones we don't like. Yeah, absolutely. Remember that Paul wrote to Christians who were being persecuted by the same authorities they were to lift petitions, prayers and intercessions for. At best, these authorities watched on coolly detached as mobs threatened to kill Christians. At worst, the authorities themselves took their families, their loved ones, their fellow worshippers and dear friends, torturing and killing them. Christians could expect to be humiliated and mistreated, thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum or burned as candles at Nero's dinner parties. When we consider the context and culture of the time, suddenly being asked to pray for those in authority looks a hard and daunting task, maybe even an outrageous one. And not only for the early church, praying for political authorities is taken as a serious command by our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world today. Wang Yi, a pastor in China, wrote this in a letter to his congregation not long before he was arrested in 2017. He wrote, In 2004, I went to a large mountain on the border of Hubei and Zhongqing to observe an underground house church there. At the 5am prayer meeting, elderly sisters, who had rarely visited even the main town in their own county, were in tears, praying for China, for the leaders of China, and for Heilong Xinjiang. Xinjiang and Tibet. I was shocked. Prayer tied humble and difficult private life in a small mountain village to the well-being of a vast world. 
These elderly women in a remote rural house church, citizens with virtually no worldly influence on the governance of their nation, were simply exercising the only tool of political influence they had. What if we took this command to pray for our leaders nearly as seriously? As a friend to me recently said, if all you can do is pray, that's fine. Because even if you had other options, it would still be the most powerful thing you could do. The problem is that praying for our leaders here in the UK can seem a little more, well, mundane. Does my local council really need me to pray for them to get the bin collections on time? Maybe we could start with those leaders who you think deserve your prayers the least. Those who make you angry. Don't pray self-righteous prayers, thanking God that you're not like them, but humbly lift them up to God. Ask that they may have compassion for the poor and the marginalised for wisdom and not naivety for more integrity and less spin for humility and less boasting. Pray for their families, their home lives, and that they might know Jesus. This isn't easy to do, but it's not meant to be. The account of Jonah stands as a rebuke to me. Jonah was told to preach to the people of Nineveh, but he despised them and didn't think they deserved to be saved. So he ran away. Who is your Nineveh? Who is mine? Let's remember that we don't deserve to be saved either, nor do we deserve anyone to pray for us. Locate your Nineveh and pray for them today. And let's thank God, too, for 180 MPs and Lords who were at the prayer breakfast last week to hear Amy or Ewing's amazing talk on forgiveness. Many of those politicians will not be Christians. So let's pray that the seed of God's word will have been planted firmly in their hearts and that he will bring that seed to fruition. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So let's hear that sermon now from Dr. Amy or Ewing. What a joy to be here together at this, um, at this prayer breakfast. A while ago, I slipped into a pew in one of Britain's most beautiful cathedrals. It was a Wednesday, and it was dusk. I was there for evensong. And I was chilled to the bone at the moment of the service when the choir sang the words of Mary's Magnificat, which are recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. And these are the words they sang. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. I'd spent that day sitting in the public gallery of a court, supporting someone who was giving evidence in a criminal trial concerning childhood sexual abuse. Mary's words expressing hope on behalf of the poor, the humble, and the powerless felt especially meaningful that evening in the aftermath of the horrific trauma recounted. Several weeks later, I remembered those words of Mary again when I sat in a basement room in a different city with another woman giving testimony to investigators about the violent assault she had endured at the hand of a teacher who lectured in the institution where she worked. In our individual lives and in our national lives and in this wider cultural moment, it feels like there is so much loss, so much harm, and a greater awareness of injustice and trauma and the damage that these things cause. 
Justice movements recognise the potency of harm, the harm inflicted on another human being when wrong is done. And we are a generation rightly crying out for justice. But that means when we really think about the pain of such harm, the word forgiveness might make some of us flinch. It might sound a little bit like a minimising of harm. The former Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, held his post during the apartheid era in South Africa, winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984 for his opposition to the brutal regime. And he led the country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the election of Mandela. And he was frequently seen crying during the hearings as victims faced and challenged their torturers, telling their stories and reliving the atrocities. And the central purpose of that commission was to promote reconciliation and forgiveness among perpetrators and the victims of apartheid through a full disclosure of truth. Tutu wrote, forgiving is not forgetting. It's actually remembering. Remembering and not using your right to hit back. It's a second chance for a new beginning. And the remembering part is particularly important, especially if you don't want to repeat what happened. In other words, forgiveness and civil justice are not mutually exclusive. But in our quest for justice, is it possible that in 21st century Britain, we've lost the art of forgiveness? Instead, at the moment, it feels like something more akin to hatred and a lack of tolerance is all around us. From the impetus to punish a person whose ideas or behaviour we disagree with by shunning the transgressor, to lobbying to get someone fired or banned from speaking or publishing or lecturing, a lack of grace thrives. High-profile individuals have had to endure campaigns of harassment and intimidation in the name of justice. And everyone in this room involved in public life in some way will have experienced the volatile and ominous nature of interacting online and in other settings. But we're not alone in this experience. Ordinary people, including many school children today in Britain, teenagers are now fearful to express their thoughts in case they get it wrong and find themselves attacked. And once singled out, there is no hope for public forgiveness and much less for redemption. Public floggings are back in the group form of group shaming and boycotting. But forgiveness feels like it's gone, the lost art of a bygone age. Accountability is everything. Redemption feels impossible. So in this cultural moment, whilst free speech advocates and intellectuals may well wring their hands in despair, let's take note of what is bubbling under the surface of this cultural phenomenon. There's a passion for justice driving some of it. At its core, there is a stark refusal to roll over and just accept harm. And there's a rejection of the unqualified relativism of postmodernism. After all, something matters in absolute terms if injustice matters. 
Individuals matter. Culture matters. Society matters. Now, I believe the Christian faith has something really profound to say to us in this cultural moment that is prizing justice so highly, as well as having some important questions to pose. Firstly, isn't it worth considering why we might feel outrage at the suffering of this world or the perceived injustices we see around us at all? If this material world of biology, physics, and chemistry is all there is, why would we experience the level of disgust and fury at the unjust exploitation of human beings who are just the random product of a process of chance, followed by the brutal outcome of the survival of the fittest? Why should any of it matter if we're just here by chance, a confluence of biochemical reactions, Doesn't our rage at injustice tell us something about who we are as human beings? Now, of course, materialists and agnostics as well as Christians and people of other faiths will experience anger and outrage in the face of injustice and the suffering of others. But my question is, what can account for that anger? If human beings are created in the image of God... As the Old Testament puts it in the book of Genesis, that would apply whether a person believed it or not. If life is in some way sacred, we would have ways of knowing this to be true. The Hebrew poet in the Old Testament puts it like this. He says, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. I think our human rage at injustice in this cultural moment points towards that. It points beyond itself to the sacredness of life and the possibility of eternity in our hearts. The possibility that as human beings we are infinitely precious and unimaginably loved by our creator, image bearers of the divine. So if our culture holds out little possibility of redemption or forgiveness, Forgiveness begins to be seen as moral weakness. Is this really what we want? Redemption is one of the grand themes in literature and art of many civilizations, and it matters deeply to us as human beings. But forgiveness and redemption are being lost in our pursuit of justice to a cold cruelty that's resonant of the denouncements of authoritarian regimes in the past. Perhaps some in our generation have lost personal contact with such systems. At 47, I'm old enough to remember conversations with my grandparents who escaped from East Germany in order to avoid being taken by the Soviets to Siberia, coming to Britain with the clothes on their back. My father, who was just a small child on that day, is here today. They had observed and lived under the cruelty of totalitarian political systems, both right-wing and left. And they and we are wired for redemption, longing for something more than that, knowing that the possibility of forgiveness matters greatly. So the big question I want to suggest to you this morning is this. Is there such a thing as forgiveness and redemption that does not minimize harm 
or dehumanise those who have suffered horror. I want to suggest today that genuine faith, shaped by the historic personality of Jesus Christ, has something truly profound to offer us in this regard. The instinct in culture that harm matters so profoundly that a person must pay, must perhaps even die some kind of social or professional death for their transgression, points beyond itself to the echo of a story that has given meaning to millions of people around the world for over 2,000 years. Jesus of Nazareth, as God incarnate, God in flesh, willingly died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. And as we heard in the reading just earlier, his death is described in the New Testament as a ransom, an offering, and a sacrifice. He pays a price for the transgressions of the world that means that forgiveness can be real. The price we all intuitively sense must be paid for harm is actually paid by Jesus. Forgiveness may have been rejected by some as a moral weakness that denies the seriousness of the wrongdoing, but Christian forgiveness doesn't say the thing that happened didn't hurt, it wasn't wrong, or it doesn't matter. Forgiveness means the incident did hurt, it was wrong, and it does matter because every human being has been made in the image of God, our suffering matters profoundly. It matters at a transcendent level. But I have the power to forgive you, to release you from my vengeance, because I can trust that justice will ultimately be done. I can commit to supporting civil justice in this life, and I can trust that there will be eternal justice in the hands of God. The transgression and harm will be judged by a higher authority than you or me. If any of us truly repents and own our wrongdoing, we can be forgiven in an ultimate sense because someone has paid. The death of the Son of God in history points to the extraordinary cost of that. And it points to the vast value placed on you, including your suffering, by loving God. Christian forgiveness underlines the seriousness of the hurt and evil that has occurred, since since forgiving it requires the suffering and the death of the Son of God. That is not cheap. In practical terms, I want to suggest that the concept of Christian forgiveness then is a gift to any culture. Forgiveness and redemption are possible. And outrage at injustice has a foundation in reality. The Christian message acknowledges that wrongdoing is real and there is a real need for justice. And it challenges us to admit that all of us are flawed in some way ourselves. All of us also need forgiveness. 
the late Queen Elizabeth II noted in her 2016 Christmas broadcast, forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. My dear friend is um, Archbishop of Jos in Plateau State, northern Nigeria. His name is Benjamin Kawashi, and he has survived three assassination attempts and a brutal assault on his wife, Gloria, and the burning of his home. The incredible suffering that this couple have been through drove both of them to their knees. But they found the strength through their faith to forgive. And they found the strength to carry on serving the people of their community. Many of whom are the terrorists who kidnapped hundreds of, children, of Christian um, schoolgirls. The Kawashis have adopted 85 orphans and live in a place of incredible tension with the most outstanding joy and peace I have ever seen. They live in a flow of forgiveness that builds schools and trains leaders to love across, dif- across difference. They build churches that serve communities, that lead to friendships across divides. Forgiveness in action is beautiful and compelling, and it helps rebuild a broken world. The Christian offer of forgiveness is for everyone to receive it and to be empowered to give it. To be offered forgiveness I don't deserve that doesn't minimize any of the harm that I have caused and yet affirms my belovedness is the heart of God's forgiveness in Christ. And through the ages, this forgiveness has had the power to change the trajectory of a life, turning me around, setting me on a new path of goodness, beauty, and truth, instead of floundering in wrongdoing. This forgiveness also has the power to liberate me from ongoing harm when I've been the victim, since it liberates me from the burden of accomplishing vengeance, which is a feat beyond me. And it frees me to live totally free from bitterness and in peace. All of us in this room this morning are invited to receive forgiveness and to receive the power to forgive others. I believe the power to forgive may just be the greatest gift that the Christian story can offer our age. The report um, done after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa concluded this. We have been privileged to help to heal a wounded people, though we ourselves have been in Henri Nouron's profound and felicitous phrase, wounded healers. 
when we look around us at some of the conflict areas of the world, it becomes increasingly clear that there is not much of a future without forgiveness, without reconciliation. God has blessed us richly so that we might be a blessing to others. Quite improbably, we as South Africans have become a beacon of hope to others locked in deadly conflict, that peace, that a just resolution is possible. If it could happen in South Africa, then it can certainly happen anywhere else. Such is the exquisite divine sense of humour. Let me end with that one phrase again. I believe the power to forgive and to receive forgiveness may just be the greatest gift that the Christian story can offer our age. Thank you for listening. Each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts on us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer, so please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk and there's a strong chance I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. Well, this week, Rachel in Warwick has been in touch and says... My question relates to how the biblical model of Sabbath rest fits with the demanding and 24-7 nature of political office. What wisdom do you have for finding Sabbath rhythms in this kind of role? Well, Rachel, it's an excellent question. And the Sabbath, I think, is something that many of us overlook, even if we observe it directly, uh, trying to understand what it is that God is saying to us via the Sabbath commandment. I mean, personally, I do take Sunday off. I go to church and I don't tend to do any work on a Sunday. Having said that, there are times when elections come or when there's country fairs and festivals that I'm invited to over a weekend when I will go along and do those things. So I'm not as strict with it as I ought to be. But as a friend of mine pointed out to me very recently, Sabbath rest is about trusting God. God knows what's good for us. Uh, God knows that rest is good as well work is good but also it is about trusting god when we look to the old testament law and we look at the the sabbath the sabbatical year uh, the year when you would leave your uh, your land fallow um that was an act of trusting god wasn't it that is basically trusting god that the six years when you plow the land and work the land that that will produce enough food to see you through the seventh and by working on that seventh year indeed us working on that seventh day us obliterating the rest that god has given us at whatever point of the day or week or year is an act of not trusting god to provide and so it's a rebuke to me and it is a really busy world and i think it's something that politicians need to be increasingly aware of for their own sake for their family's sake but also setting example to the rest of the country all of us need to take time to rest just for practical purposes. But if we're Christians, we need to do so because in doing so, it's an act of trusting God to provide. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you uh, for all those hundreds of people, including 180 parliamentarians gathered together in Westminster Hall last week to hear your word preached. Uh, to pray and to sing your praises. Um, we pray for each of us uh, that we might 
choose our Nineveh. We might think of those people um, who we least agree with, um, those in politics we might find least appealing, and in a gracious and humble, loving and sacrificial way, choose to pray for them, uh, for their well-being, for them to be lifted up to God, for God to strengthen them, for God to bless them, uh, for God to give them wisdom. And Lord, we pray also for every one of those people who were at the prayer breakfast. We know amongst them, many parliamentarians are those who do not yet follow you, Lord Jesus. Yet, as I was there myself, you know um, that you were there too, Lord, that the message that Amy or Ewing preached, which was one which was a faithful one, that was a call to repent, a call to accept forgiveness and indeed to forgive. We just really pray that you will be planting and nurturing the seed um, that uh, was that came from that sermon and from that prayer breakfast in the hearts of dozens and dozens of people, um, some of whom we may even have heard of uh, in the days and weeks to come. And you would bring many to faith in you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you build your kingdom and we praise you that you um, include us in that. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash a mucky business.